weapons are so valuable, people have made fake ones. They, they've, they've made attempts, they, they've worked to create different stones that weren't as valuable, that weren't as rare as diamonds, but looked like them, had a lot of the same qualities as them. And so John Hattelberg is one of these guys. In fact, he's one of the best at making a fake diamond. He, he has you know, leaders in the diamond industry meet with him. He'll go before boards of companies and things like that, and he'll have them inspect these diamonds. And they won't be able to tell the real thing from the fake one that John Hattelberg has made. Only John Hattelberg could tell the difference. And tonight we're going to look at a passage of scripture that enables us to see the difference between religion or a relationship with God that is real or from something that is fake, from something that is not so real. In these two verses, James gives us a conditional statement. He says, if A, B, and C are true about you, then this is true about your life. And so we're going to look at that that conditional statement and and look at what real religion is and see how to tell the replica of a relationship with God from the real thing. So, James chapter 1, verse number 26, the Bible says, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. James gives some requirements as to what you know, this, this empty or vain religion really is. The, the, these requirements are summed up in three different things. The first of all is that they are presumptuous. Presumptuous. It says, if any man among you seem to be religious... I think we all understand that people can be fakers. I, I think that we, we automatically assume that people can be fakers. In fact, I think something that's real is, is valuable. We, we really value some, someone who is genuine or transparent, right? We, we value that kind of thing. Um, advertising today, you know... I don't think it really works as much as it used to, you know, because people are so skeptical now. You know, when you see an ad, so, someone selling something, you don't really believe the promises that they give you. Like, say someone offers you, a fr- you know, something free, and you know, wait, where's, wh- what's the catch? This isn't really free. There's a saying, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. We are naturally skeptical people, and today I think people care more than ever about being real. But how do we know, well, how do we, why do we have this automatic assumption that other people are being fake? Why do, we, why do we inherently question the motives of other people? Why is it that we always assume that there's a catch, that someone has an ulterior motive? Well, maybe it's because we've been burnt before. Maybe it's because someone has, someone's betrayed us, someone has done us wrong, someone has tricked us. Or, and I think maybe this is true for me, I I don't know about you, but I think it's because I know my own um, duplicity. I I know how two-faced I can be. I understand from my own heart and my own thoughts about how often I have ulterior motives, and because of that, I I project that onto other people. Before we go any further, I want to make it clear that um, in this passage, it's not 
to inspect other people. It's not, it, when it says, if any man seem to be religion, it, religious, it's not talking about, well, if someone else seems to be religious, know that word seem, it's talking about me. It's, it's, reflect, it's for in, not for inspection, but for, for introspection. As in this, this man, he, who seems to be religious, if any man seem to be religious, it says, someone who considers himself to be religious. Someone who has deliberated and decided that they are religious. In fact, the, the word seem there means to regard something as presumably true, but without particular certainty. The first requirement for, for vain or empty religion is that this man assumes he, or considers himself to be religious. Now that word for religion specifically emphasizes outward displays of religion. So it often referred to the acts of worship and liturgy that people perform at religious services. So this, this man, he presumes that he is a religious person, and I think that a lot of us in this room meet this first requirement. In fact, I, I kind of hope that you would, that you'd consider yourself to be someone who's religious, someone who performs religious acts, someone who, who does things in a religious manner. So we see with, with this understanding that this is for me, not for me to inspect other people, but this is for me to introspect, to decide whether or not my religion is vain or empty. So that's, that's the first requirement for this empty religion. Secondly, he is undisciplined. It says, and bridleth not his tongue. This person does not control their tongue. They have a lack of restraint when it comes to what they say. I want to just stop and say how important the language that we use is to God. Communication is important, right? But communication is very important. The way in which we communicate thoughts and ideas, it's very, 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 very important. And it's very important to understand the differences in communication that we have. I think it's especially in relationships when, uh, between a guy and a girl, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, it's so, so important to understand the different ways that human beings communicate and how we understand each other's thoughts and our words. I, I don't think that that can be understated, how important words are. In fact, God chose to communicate his message to us through words. Have you ever thought about that? How that, that is the way that God speaks to us. It's not necessarily through our feelings, our emotions. It's not necessarily through the clouds in the sky. It's not necessarily through the circumstances, the things that happen to us. God chose to communicate his word and his will for our lives through written word. Words are very, very important, and sometimes one of my hobby horses is proper speech or communication, right? Uh, understanding the way that the English language is supposed to be communicated and doing that correctly. But I'm a hypocrite because sometimes I, mess, I make grammatical, my grammatical mistakes aren't as much, aren't as um, important as yours. But uh, anyway, the way that we communicate is very important because if we're not careful, we can communicate the wrong message. God has given us, as believers, if you're a child of God tonight, God has given us the responsibility to communicate a message, the gospel, that, that, that you know, men are sinners, 
Christ died for them and he rose again. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And we need to use our words to communicate that. And it's not just when we're sharing the gospel that we need to communicate that message. You, you know what I mean? It's, it's not just when I am taking the time to walk through the Romans road or tell someone John 3, 16 or, or, or what, however you want to talk about the gospel. It's not just then that you need to be careful that I communicate the right message. As believers, if we don't control our tongues, if we don't bridle our tongues, then, then we could communicate the wrong message, and not the message that God loves people, that, that Christ has redeemed us from sin, that there's a new way that we should communicate. If we're careful, we won't communicate that message. Ephesians 4.29, the Bible says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And I've heard that, that verse and I'm not, I'm not saying it's inappropriate to use it this way, but I've heard that verse applied to, you know, you know cuss words or however you want to describe profanity. Um, you know, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is the good, good to the use of edifying. And while, the, you know, that may be applicable with that verse, that's not really what Paul was talking about when he, when he wrote Ephesians 4.29. The, the meaning to the Ephesians was corrupt communication when it had to do with gossiping and being rude to other people and being mean, and the way that you speak to your family members, and the way that you speak to your church, your, your church family. That's, that's what Paul was talking about when he wrote those words, and that's, I think, God's really concerned, not just with us not using cuss words, but also with that, with using words that build people up rather than tear them down. That, that is an, uh, um, an indicator of the, the realness or the genuineness of our religion. James says that if you look at yourself, you can tell if your outward religiosity, you know what I mean? Your, your outward shows, your, your service at church, you know, your attendance at church, your, 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 whatever you do for God, you can tell if that's genuine by your control over your own tongue. You know, it's funny how this verse is given to us for introspection, because we are, we are the only people who hear everything that we say. Right? I can, I can kind of control my speech in front of other people for a temporary amount of time, right? I, I can take a short amount of time while I'm at church or I'm with church people or, or whoever in the community, and I can control my tongue around them, but I always hear everything that I say. And you can tell whether or not your religion is true if you can control your tongue. Not just when you're around church people. Not, not just when you know others are listening, but when you don't think so. By the way that you communicate with your close family members. By the way that you communicate even with yourself and when you're by yourself. That's how you know that your religion is real. That there's genuineness to your religion. So that is the second requirement for vain religion. The next one, deluded. This person is deluded. The, the end, but deceiveth his own heart. Lastly, this person has deceived themselves. That is how we know that our religion is vain. 
Now, it's funny, when, when you've deceived yourself, you, you kind of tricked yourself into believing something that's a lie. So how can you tell whether or not you've deceived yourself? Well, you need to ask yourself, am I, am I, am I, really de- am I deceiving myself? The, the implication is that, it, you know, while in, you know, peripherally speaking, in the forefront of my mind, I think that I'm religious. But when I start to really dig deep into my conscience... When, when I really ask myself, is this real? Is my service for God? Is the things that I do at church, my, even my attendance, all those things, is this just a show? Is it empty? Am I deceiving myself or is this real? Is this who I really am? And the, the implication here is that I can ask myself that question and if I do it with, with the right spirit and the right heart, I, I will get an answer Deep down, someone whose religion is vain is living, they're living a lie. They've chosen to believe something that's not real. And you, you might be doing all the right things on the outside, but on the inside, it's not genuine at all. Can I ask you, have you believed a lie? Is your religion fake is, is it, or is it real? Have you convinced yourself that though you realize you don't have a handle on your own tongue, that you're a religious person? Ask yourself that question. So those are the requirements for this statement to be true. But now we're going to look at the reality. So if A, B, and C are true about you, what's the reality? The reality is this man's religion is vain. This is the then statement. If this is true, then this is true. James says that if those things are true about you, then your religion is empty or vain. That word vain, it means pertaining to being useless on the basis of being futile and lacking in content. Useless, futile, empty, or futility. All of your outward works of religion are in vain. They are useless and they lack content. And what a sad story that is. That someone, you know, you could... Do all you wanted to do for God. You you could you could do you know you 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 could go and you know knock on every door in Baldwin County and, and tell people about Manual Baptist Church and you could I mean I and it would be empty. You you could you could preach a thousand messages. You could sing as many specials up there. You could sing in the choir or. I mean, you could help with, with church meals. You could do all these things, but it would be in vain. How important, then, is our speech? How, how, how important is the way that we live our lives? How important is it that we are honest with ourselves about who we really are? So, first of all, we saw these, these requirements and this reality. Now we're going to look at the real standard here uh, of religion. The, the characteristics of real religion. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. James shows a very stark contrast here between something that's fake and futile and something that is real, pure and undefiled. The first word there, pure, it, it has the idea of being clean. 
And, and it refers, a lot of the times in the New Testament, it refers to the state of being ceremonial, ceremonially clean. So the Jews, they would have rules and regulations about how they needed to clean themselves so they could be clean before they performed acts of worship before God. And James uses that same word to say this is religion that is clean before God. This, this is how you have religion that God accepts. And I, I, I mean, it would be really silly to have these outward demonstrations of religion, these outward shows of your relationship with God, but then God does not accept them. God rejects them because they are not pure. So this is, that's the idea of the word pure. And secondly, undefiled basically means without defilement. It means some, it is without anything that would cause it to be unclean or dirty. So kind of the same word twice, just a little bit different flavor. But it's really important that we understand that this is religion that God accepts. This, th- there, there is no other way to have religion that God will accept, or outward demonstrations of our worship before God. There is no other way. And I'm not saying that this is the only way to worship God. There are a lot of ways in which the New Testament tells us that we are to worship God. There are a lot of ways in which God shows us that we can show him that we love him and that he is worthy of our all. But without this way, you cannot have real worship of God. Without these characteristics, your religion will be empty or vain. God will not accept it. First of all, practical love. It says to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. God loves the fatherless and the widows. He, lo- he loves orphans and those that, that are hurting. And throughout the Bible, God talks about those who are, who are foreigners over and over. Especially, in fact, in the Old Testament, if you look at the Old Testament, it talks about how God lo- loves the sojourner. That's someone that's in a different country. And God loves the widows, those, those who have lost their husbands or, or, their, or their wives. God loves the orphans. Over and over again, throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, God tells us that he has a special place in his heart for those who are broken and hurting. The, the religion of Christianity, the, the true religion of the Bible, is for broken people, just like Pastor Phil preached this morning. This, this is religion. This is something that is for people who realize that they need God. People that are hurting. True religion is one that imitates the practical love of God. God's love always causes him to take action. His love is never an isolated feeling that stays in his heart and never produces anything. God's love is always love that produces action. There's always fruit. There's always effort that's a result of God's love. And our love for God, our worship of him, it must produce action. It must cause us to seek action and to do things. And that, that first example, this, this example that, that James writes here is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And there's no way to get around the, if you look at the words that are used here, there's no way to get around the emphasis of this passage. 
It says to visit. When it uses that word visit, that it, let, me, let me find that definition of the word. It means to visit for the purpose of comfort and relief, to look at observantly. It implies visiting and when understanding their needs and with the intent of taking care of those needs. It lo- that word visit, literally, it's not just a different word that's translated to, to visit. It, it meant the same thing to them. It meant to, to have your physical presence in the presence of other people. I mean, it meant to actually do something, to be with the fatherless and the widows. And then it says, in their affliction. In order to visit them in their affliction, we have to understand their affliction. We have to understand their hurt and their pain. We, we, have, to, we, we have to put ourselves in their shoes, so to speak. We, we must understand their needs. And then, you know, when it says in their affliction, it also carries with it the idea of being in their pain with them. As, as in sympathizing with them. Attempting to understand not just their circumstances and the, the reality of their predicament, but the way that they feel about it as well. We must visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. When was the, not just, you know, but not just fatherless and widows. There's a, there's a quote here that I have here. The orphan and widow become types of those who find themselves helpless in the world. Christians whose religion is pure will imitate their father by intervening to help the helpless, those who suffer from want in the third world and the inner city, those who are unemployed and penniless, those who are inadequately represented in government or in law. These, these are the people who should see abundant evidence of Christians' pure religion. And I'm not, I'm not trying to get so political here tonight, but there are some matters in which I think Christians should take a step back and ask themselves. Have I stopped to ask if said people group, are they really hurting? Have I stopped for a second and asked myself, wait a second, I know where I am on the political spectrum and what the typical response to this issue is, um, according to, to my said place in the political spectrum. I, I know what my my normal response should be, but wait a second, have I stopped and said, how do these people really feel? Are they in that group of the, the fatherless and the orphans, the people who have been mistreated, the people who have been deserted, by, abandoned by other people? Have, I ever, have you stopped and thought about that? When was the last time that you reached into someone's life and said, how do they, how do they really feel? What, what is their pain and what, what is their predicament? And visited them in their affliction, which always produces action. It always causes us to do something. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. What you do outside the four walls of this place is just as important as what you do inside of it. True religion and undefiled before God is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. Secondly, also, to keep himself unspotted from the world. So first of all, practical love. Secondly, practical holiness. To keep himself unspotted from the world. 
from the world. And when it says unspotted, it means without mark or without blemish. And then it says from the world. James writes later in, in, the, book of, uh, in the epistle of James, James 4.4, 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And sometimes I think that the proliferation of this verse, how often we use this verse in, in preaching and in studying everything and, and in teaching, the gravity of this verse is lost on us. Enemy of God. Have you, have you thought, someone who's a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So what is, what is the world? It's, it, th- that word that's, that's used there is the word cosmos, or you know, it, we also pronounce that word cosmos. It basically means a system of thinking. It means a, a worldview. How? The, the, the framework that we use to view the world. And there is a framework to view everything, to view um, reality that is for God, and there is a framework that is against God. And the framework that is against God is called cosmos or the world. That, that is what the world is. It's, it's the, 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 the worldview, the system of thinking that is opposed to God. The world thinks one way, and God thinks another way. So when it comes to money, God thinks one way, all of it belongs to him, and we are stewards, and we are to give freely. That, that's the way God thinks about money. The world thinks a different way. The, the world thinks money is, is for me, and I, I'm to use, yeah, I should probably use it wisely, but still, money is for me, it's for my enjoyment, and whether or not I save that so I can be secure, or whether I spend it a lot so I can have happiness, either way, it's for me. That's, and, and when it comes to entertainment, anything that I like, anything that makes me laugh or entertains me, that's nice. That, or That's the world view. I'm sorry, now I'm over here saying that God's doing the wrong thing. We're switching sides now. <laughs> God, the world thinks anything that's nice, anything that I enjoy, anything that brings me amusement, that, that's a good thing. God says no, the things that please me. That's what we should entertain ourselves with. We should think on things that are pure, holy, honest, just all those uh, good report. We should think on all those things. There are two different ways of thinking. And when we live in the world's way of thinking, we are not living in the, w- in the way of God's thinking. We just can't, we can't do both at the same time. And it affects every area of our lives. You can't have real religion and live like the world. It's just, it's not going to happen. You, you, you can't agree with the w- way the world does things, the way that the, the world handles relationships, the way that the world handles work, the, the way that the world hand is, handles speech. You can't do that and also do things the way that God says because by definition, they are opposed. And so we must be concerned with the way God thinks about things and how do we... Well, how do we figure out the way God... I don't know. He kind of wrote a book. He gave us the Bible. God has given us His Word so that we might understand the way He thinks. So we can understand when the world's wrong. We can understand when culture goes too far. And we would understand, wow, this is the way that I should live my life. Not this way. Oh, that's the way that God says I should use my money? Wow, that's a lot different than the way that I've been raised and the way that the world has taught me to use it. We must be... 
very, very, very concerned with learning the way that God thinks. Otherwise, we can't help but be spotted from the world. You can't live a life that's unspotted from the world unless you understand the way God thinks. We must be very, very, very concerned about learning what God has to say about life. True religion thinks according to the way that God thinks. How do, you, how do you live your life on a daily basis? True religion, something that's real, affects every area of your life. It's not just, well, that's just my church life. That's just my religiosity zone over here. And I've compartmentalized these other areas of my life that I have to myself. And I can live in, in these compartments the way that I want to live and the way that seems best to me. That's fake. That's vain. That's empty. True religion says... All of these compartments, this is all God's. All of this, I must surrender to God and say, God, how do you want, to live my li- how do you want me to live my life? How, how, how can I please you? How can I stay away from the world system of thinking and, Lord, please you because of the way that you think about this area of my life? You know, God, God did not save us just to go to heaven. He did not... He, I, I, it's, it's awesome to sing songs about heaven and it's awesome to think about that. But what about the time in between? Do we just like hang out and you know, do whatever until we go to... No! God, God redeemed us so we could walk in newness of life, Romans talks about. We should walk in newness of life. And if there is no newness to the way that you live your life, then I'd ask you, is your religion real. True religion is this, that you visit the the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, that you keep yourself unspotted from the world. Are you visiting the hurting and the broken? Are you understanding and viewing life in the framework of there are people out there that need to understand the love of God? that need to to understand that Christianity is not for those who have it all together. It's for those that realize they do not. And also, do you care about the way you live? Is it important to you that you live within God's system of thinking rather than the world's? And it affects every area of your life. In closing, I want to Quote a passage from Isaiah, because the message of the Bible is always the same. And Isaiah said basically the same thing that James had to say. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. The Bible says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. 
And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make prayer, many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. See, God's message is always morality and compassion. Always caring about what God has to say about the way that I live my life and also caring about the needs of others. Real, true religion, genuine religion is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows and their inflictions and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Let's pray together.